This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all from Austin, Tejas. Daniel Eisen in here, breaking normal, as usual. It's only getting better. Y'all ready for a, a big cock talk? That sounded kind of weird, actually. I meant it's a, it's like a big talk, and it's a cock talk in the sense that it's about manhood and about how some people had part of their manhood removed without their consent at the entry to planet Earth. It's a pretty wild uh, normal that I'm very happy that I'm helping break. And the guest of honor today, Brendan Murata, director and producer of American Circumcision, which you can catch on Netflix right now, is my guest. And funny enough, this intro is recorded about a week after the actual interview, and we just got we just wrapped up our first breaking normal microdose of Tribe Design here in Austin, Texas. He joined us to get high on our own supply, taking advantage of oxygen in the most advantageous way, and then leveraging polar plunging to really supercharge our electric systems. I mean, come on, guys. As you're listening to this through an electronic device, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that if you want your electronic devices to work at their best function, it's very important to charge them. And if you didn't know, you are an electric being. Are you charging yourself? And do you charge yourself in the morning in particular? So we gave a, a group of people an experience of that today. And it was super epic. Brendan was one of them. And one thing that I forgot in a way, and I would like to talk about forgetting really quick. How does one forget something, really? Do you? I'm curious. Do you all really believe in forgetting something? Because how do you remember? I, I believe people remember they forgot something temporarily, but can you really remember something you forgot? How can you remember it if you forgot it? <laughs> That's a different topic for a different time and space. But this topic is very important to me. Um, I tell my personal story around circumcision and still exploring it, actually. And uh, if you want to join us at the next uh, microdose of Tribe Design, it'll be next Sunday. We're doing them le up here in Austin, Texas, leading up to our next event, March 22nd. So maybe Brendan will join us. Maybe you'll join us. Uh, send in your application ASAP because the time is now as usual. And now is for infinity, in case anyone forgot that. See how I did that? Anywho, uh, enough of the uh, jokes by myself. Let's start telling. Let's start making light and of something kind of serious. Making fun, making more fun into a topic that's very taboo because the way to uh, turn anxiety or any trauma into health is by addressing it. So we really went into addressing this. And one thing I did not remember to include during the interview was asking him, what do they do with the foreskins? And his short answer was that uh, they're typically sold for profit. I'm not certain. I haven't done much research about that, but it's a pretty complex topic, and I encourage you to do your own research around that. And we really dive deep into almost all the angles of this crazy cultural norm of circumcision, and I trust we're going to help break it. And by you listening and rating and reviewing this podcast and sharing it out, you'll be a part of that movement as well. So yeah, let's as uh, individuals and as a collective, let's shed the skin once again, paradoxically enough, of what's not serving what's not serving us, just as a snake sheds its skin, so we can really find out what we are. And I, I trust this will illuminate a topic that deserves much addressing. That maybe it's continued so long unconsciously because people were 
concerned about addressing it. And I think one of the most dangerous things people can do is avoid addressing taboo topics. So I trust this will be a safe place to not say, play it safe and to uh, learn about a topic that many people have ignored. And at the end of the uh, podcast, I'll be sure to leave a sample of Breaking Normal, the Audible. So um, it might encourage you to get ambitious enough to give it a download and uh, listen to it while going on a hike or getting a massage or going on a walk. Um, it's a, such a a big part of my life and many people's lives now. So enjoy Breaking Normal. Enjoy this podcast. And I'll uh, the next podcast, actually, as well, is around a similar topic. So... I'm interviewing a urologist. I've already interviewed it, but that'll be released, I think, Wednesday. So stay in tune. Um, I think that's the schedule we're going to aim to stick to is new episodes every Sunday and Wednesday. And I trust it'll keep the schedule for you of Breaking Normal continuously to make sure it only gets better. And to realize that if we don't write our own rules, then we might fall into someone else's. Um, And in order to write our rules, sometimes we get to bend or break the current ones. And I'm not encouraging anyone to go out and do anything too dangerous, maybe socially dangerous, maybe emotionally dangerous, uh, but physically safe and to respect the current rules and maybe to uh, bend and break them in an upgraded way. Much love, y'all. Enjoy. Brendan Murata? Yes. You Brendan. said it right because you did. Brendan it's an Murata. Italian name, yeah. so you did the correct <laughs> hand gesture while saying it. You could, this is another pronunciation. That's a third. That's if you really want to emphasize it. Well, it looks like the podcast has began because I would encourage you to see what he's referencing on the website, breakingnormal.com slash podcast, and see the correct pronunciation of Brendan Murata, who's also known as the director of the movie American Circumcision, which anyone can go check out right now on Netflix. Anywhere else? Uh, it's on circumcisionmovie.com. It's on Netflix, Amazon, iTunes, Vimeo, all the places that you can get a movie. And by the way, I, just in case if it, uh, I'd like to make it official. I pray for the best synergy with this podcast as possible and that we can clearly convey the message that will be the most impactful and the most amount of people in the most positive way. In Jesus' name and job bless, Abijah. The source, the creator of the universe, amen. Aho, amen. <laughs> All right, thanks for being here, man. Yeah. I'm excited to get to know you, and this is an extremely personal topic for me. I was referencing, I actually tried to find, I don't know how to do this. If someone can help me out, I once made a Me Too post on my Facebook page, and I was wanting to locate that so I could read it before. Um, and my Me Too, that was a, a trending topic, I guess, about people that were sexually abused from my understanding yeah sexual assault and sexual abuse okay yeah so i wrote my post about that it really that i i'm so i think it's so cool first of all congratulations to the world and everyone that participated in that whether it was doing that or just watching for making like a uh, real talk more normal Yes, that's a big freaking deal. I personally believe that usually what's if there's a, something that's not being addressed by two people that are in a relationship that's significant, especially known as, as something as significant as sexual trauma, by, by not addressing that, that's a real disconnect in their relationship. Right. So uh, a lot of our retreats, the very first thing we do is get everyone to confess everything they think would ruin their chances of connecting with this person um, or the group. Like, what would be their biggest fear? And not that we have to go there right now. That's but powerful. Yeah, it's a big freaking deal. It is like, I, I've only, I, I've never really taken a large dose of acid, but this seems like the most acid-like experience. It seems like every, like a, a, 
all these fears and shadows kind of get lifted and they and it like melts into a puddle of love. People are just so connected after that re- that big reveal. Yeah. And on that note for me and a lot of men, um, stories around our penises are a big freaking deal. Uh, especially, especially if uh, something, if a sexual assault had happened at an age as early as like one day or two day, or I think in my case it was eight days. I, uh, um, you might know more about this. I, I was, uh, my circumcision was performed at a bris. Yeah, so that would be eight days. The Jewish tradition, it's the eighth day. And I, what I imagine from that scene, from when I've talked to my parents about it, and I don't know if I remember it um, in my mind, but I imagine... It was with a lot of drunk, dissociative family members that were supporting something culturally, but they were psychologically and inherently and genetically and authentically triggered so much so. And I mentioned the drinking because I think that is it's quite, at least with my family, I think people were probably drinking extra that night. And my mom, talking to my mom about it, she had a lot of seeming trauma around it as well. Like, she probably woke up, like, as it was happening, really realizing what in the heavens is going on. Or what the hell, what in the hell may be going on. It depends on how you look at that. And, um, man, I I imagine that's made a big impact in my life. Uh, And I'm still figuring it out. But basically, I think they removed a part of my penis in front of this group of people that were pretending to party. And, uh... For not only myself, but for any little boy at eight days old, or even at the hospital, how is it traditionally done? Is it done like the first day when they're born right there? The hospital it is. It's often the first day. It's, it's within, within hours of being born. So I've, I think I've uh, heard maybe for like an Einstein idea that what can really determine someone's perception of the world is their initial yeah. um, experience of the environment. Yes. So that's pretty... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are, good or evil, but like whatever is at the bigger play, like the who, who, what's the Wizard of Oz behind make how this became a normal cultural ritual? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that before we get into the more easy to understand ideas? So that you, it sounds like there's two questions there, which is the the history of how it became normal, and then the the psychological spiritual of how it became normal. Yeah. And in the film, we get into the history. We talk about uh, how in the Victorian era, for there was a belief that masturbation was the cause of all of these social and physical ills and that this was a cure for masturbation, that you could just remove the most sensitive part of the body. And if you read their early writing, the intention was to cause pain to associate that part of the body with punishment because they felt that sexuality was in many ways harmful and bad and we wanted to reduce that now of course we have a very different perspective on sexuality we see it as healthy and good and something that you want to participate in whereas at the time they had a very different perspective so that's the historical and and what's interesting is that as that history has gone on Doctors have changed their rhetoric on sin. Now they say there's no sexual impact of circumcision. It doesn't change sensitivity at all. It makes no difference. And they forget the history they have in their own literature 
of saying exactly the opposite. And, and you look in the history, it changes around the sexual revolution when, of course, American attitudes were changing and we had a very different attitude towards sexuality. And so, real quickly, my historical knowledge could borderline be embarrassing to me, but um, your the first error that you're talking about where this meme was birthed, what was that error in history? The Victorian era, so late 1800s. Late 1800s, okay, because... Now, what, or I would like to also explore maybe some of the other topic, like other historical realms as well. Sure. Uh, but let's continue. We'll, well, continue on the thread that, that I like this contrast right here. Yeah. So, so in terms of the psychological impact, there is in there that early writing the intention of causing harm in some way, or what we would think of now as harm. And if you go back in a lot of the religious writing too, there is a similar intention. There are there was uh, I believe Moses Maimonides. There was a Jewish rabbi who wrote that he thought that part of the purpose of circumcision was to reduce sexuality. That this was so that the man could focus more on God and less on you know worldly pleasures. And the the psychological impact is one that. I think to a lot of people is really obvious, but it is hard to prove in double-blind studies. So you can't really do a study where you circumcise half the population and leave the other half intact and then give them exactly the same lives, exactly the same upbringing. Yet at the same time, all the research that we have suggests that early life trauma has a dramatic impact later in life. That like you said, those first life experiences in some way color the rest of our lives. And if you get into, uh, for example, Joseph Campbell, I don't know if you're familiar with him, with Here of a Thousand Faces, uh, The Power of Mythology. One of the things that he actually talks about, about this issue, is that in the Jewish tradition, it is marking the child to say that your body belongs to the tribe. So one of the underlying things being said there is that what the tribe wants is what more important than what you as an individual wants, and that the tribe in some way owns your body, and if they want to do something like that to you, they can. They have the, you know, that your individual desires are not as important as what your family wants. And that's a very, there's like a lot of psychological lessons that are being taught when you do this early in life. Because the child can't really process it the way that an adult can. You know, as an adult, if something like that happens to you, you have a narrative memory of it. You can in some way articulate what you felt and flesh out those feelings and, and, and work with them in some way. But a child doesn't have that. So you were talking about, you know, feeling like there was maybe a memory of it, not really a memory of it, not really being sure about that. Early life experiences, you have what's known as somatic memory. So you don't have narrative memory. You don't have what we might think of as what you would call time traveling memory. Like if I ask you what you did yesterday, you and your mind would sort of time travel back there and be able to tell me a narrative story about what you did. Whereas an early life experience, you don't have that yet. You have a feeling in the body. And that, that is still a form of memory. It's a form of memory that, for example, animals have. So if you tried to ask your dog, who uh, jumped on me when I came in, if you tried to ask him what happened yesterday, he couldn't really tell you. Yet when, when you come home, he recognizes you, and he's happy to see you. And his tail starts wagging. So he has a form of memory, he has somatic memory, he has a memory in his body of associating you with certain things. 
but he doesn't have that narrative memory. Yet, you would still, you know, you wouldn't uh, do hurtful things to your dog because, oh, well, he won't remember it, right? You understand that if you were to start beating your dog, he would have a very different memory of you and a very different association with you, and he would react to you differently. And they have done studies to indicate that circumcision causes this form of memory, causes a change in behavior, that children who are circumcised actually behave differently later. So there is a spiritual impact, and it is one that it is hard to quantify through scientific studies, but simply because we can't quantify it does not mean that it isn't there. And I think that people get caught up in that quantifying debate and sometimes forget the personal aspect of, okay, but even if I can't quantify it in all the population, I know how I feel. And I know what I need to deal with. And that's a whole separate question of like, how do you process what happened to you and how, what you felt? Yeah, there's many things that are coming up around this. Uh, for me, one being um, I'm suspicious. if I'm almost scared of how much we might agree on this. Um, I'm like, wow, where is there going to be the breaking normal? Because <laughs> usually people start saying things. I'm like, oh, I feel like the butterflies come up. Like, I, I do not agree with that. But like, it's you, what you're saying to me resounds so much. So thank you for being so articulate on this matter. And I have a feeling some people might be tempted to disengage or disagree or put on blinders if they – are circumcised and they don't want to consider the ramifications that may have came with that or even more so and I know this because I've talked about vaccines pretty publicly and that's a highly triggering topic um, and I believe it's because I first of all I know a lot of parents and new parents and I don't think they want to believe they may have done something to their child that could have been harmful and unnecessary because they got sold an idea from culture so I I, what, is, what would you say to those people? Like, how can we ask them to continue the conversation, regardless of flighting or freezing or facading, because maybe there's a personal involvement? It is totally understandable that people would have a negative reaction to this topic, or not want to talk about it, or want to avoid it, or even feel like that if you criticize it, that in some way you're personally attacking them and the choices they make. Because I, I know that. When I first discovered this topic, I had a similar reaction of, well, well, I'm circumcised, so there's nothing I can do about it, so why would I think about that? And when it comes, there's two questions there. One is how circumcised men react, and one is how parents who made that decision react. And when it comes to circumcised men, I think that the way that we frame it in language is really important. So a lot of circumcised men will say, I am circumcised. And it becomes an identity when you say it like that. Rather than circumcision is something that happened to me. Because you weren't born circumcised. It was a thing that happened to you, you know. The same way that people say, I am male, or I am Jewish, or I am gay, or I am straight. It's that is The moment you say it that way, it becomes an identity thing. And it feels like to some people that if you criticize it, it is like you are criticizing something as personal as those other aspects of identity. When in reality, you are just talking about a thing that happened to them. It is not who they are. And so I think that men have to make that distinction. And when you see it as something that happened to you, you know, if, if you were to 
get in a car accident and have to have your hand amputated. And I always tell you, you know, I, don't, I think the doctor was wrong there. You, he didn't need to do that. You might be upset because this person did something to you that wronged you, but you wouldn't, you know, think that I am somehow saying that there is something wrong with you because that happened to you. Likewise, parents who have made this decision, there is a, a, a challenge there in that they feel like if you are criticizing it that you are saying that they are a bad parent. When in reality, you're simply saying that they made a decision and they could have made a better decision. And parents, you know, I, I don't think that there's any parent who would argue that they are infallible or perfect or that every decision they've ever made with their child was perfect. And especially on one like this, where the only information they may have had available was from the doctor, from the person who is selling the circumcision. So there is a way in which they have to be able to just acknowledge a mistake and, and say that I might have done something that wasn't as good as it could be rather than, you know, the, the taking it to the place where they think they're a bad person. Man, you're definitely speaking some breaking normal language here because this is a lot of the work that I do is revolved specifically around this topic for people to realize. You even said what I would describe as the truth tense. Like this is something that happened to them or a decision they made in the past. Yeah. That's pretty simple. But so, And that can actually be the same for what I think even people's stories around anxiety or depression. And I'm not undermining someone's identity or belief around that. But I do think some people have experienced a certain emotional state that was very overwhelming for them. They didn't know what to do with it. And instead of just letting it go, they started identifying with it and perpetuated it more. And I think that when I mentioned, we mentioned Jesus earlier. I mentioned uh, I am that I am. That's how I believe he describes himself in the Bible. And that's, a, that's I think, a great thing to realize, like that I am that I am and that I am I, I am much more than what I do, and I and I can make new choices all the time, including about what's happened to me versus what I actually am, which might be no thing and everything simultaneously. That's some uh, sort of my beliefs around that currently. Um, so this is a big this is a big fun topic for me. I can make it personal. Oh yeah, by the way, Araya is uh, our dog. She's a she. Okay. <laughs> and the imagining. I, I also thought about the imagining the hand. I was like. I imagine my hands are nice and healthy and only going to get stronger. And I think that's a good point because think about the driver in the situation. That would be kind of like the parent. I could see how someone could, it could be, and someone can inflict more pain around themselves if they were the driver in an accident like that than the person themselves potentially. So I can see how this parent, a parent versus the man dynamic. That's pretty fascinating because I don't think, I don't think it's a, a soft subject for my mom. Um, my dad has more of, I think, a, a, a true, like a story around it that he's sticking to. <laughs> now, let's talk about something that happened recently. I sent you a video right before this. It was a video I made um, called The Circumcision of Consciousness, and I was talking to my daughter in like layman terms about what's going on with this. Why is this happening? And that was partly catalyzed by my brother. He just had his first son, and we, uh, he, he, I really didn't want him to uh, <laughs> circumcise his son. Slash, I guess that's my nephew now. Um, but they wanted to, and that happened, and that that just brought up a lot for me. I'm like, how do I t deal with this? How do I talk about it? <laughs> my, one of my ways of dealing with it is making a creative video around it, so I think we have that in common. Yeah, that's true. Have you caught yourself in this situation? You're like, oh, don't, like, that's my nephew, or that's going to be like, no, don't do it. How do I, I, before the movie, what were you yeah. doing? Yeah, you know, 
I think talking to your family about this issue is in some way the hardest because there's that saying, uh, a prophet is never respected in his hometown. And it's funny because on something like this or in the film work that I do, I'm, I'm seen as an expert on the issue. But to my family, I'm still their younger cousin, right? They're never going to see me as the expert of anything because they knew me when I was eight years old and they still see that person in me. And so I have struggled with that with my own family. Um, and I think in some way it is easier now that the film is out because part of the reason I made the film is I found myself having the same conversation over and over about this. And so I would spend two hours giving all this information, but they would just be hearing it from me. And so they would assume, well, maybe that's just his opinion, not you know, all of the research that I had done and all of the research that's in the film and the numerous experts and the people we've interviewed and the stories we've collected. So in some way it's easier now because I just tell people you should watch the film, right? But I, I, family is some of the hardest because they don't see you the same way that people who are just meeting you see you. They have the baggage of everything else. And I don't know that I have a good solution there. I know that some people who are involved in this issue will tell friends of theirs, hey, my my cousin or my uncle is having a kid. Can you talk to them? Like, this is their Facebook. This is their social media. Can you just give them some information? Because they're not going to listen to it from me because they, they already think that I'm, you know, just another member of the family. But they might listen to you because you have these credentials or you're my friend who's a doula or whatever it is, right? Yeah, this is really fascinating. Um, and, and I want to say thank you so much because what I didn't have a suggestion for anyone listening. If you find yourself in those shoes, uh, show them this film. Yeah, so that's why I made it. Thank you so much for <laughs> making it. It's, it's a real honor to be here with you. I like that's a, I really acknowledge your contribution there. Appreciate it. And then on a side, different, different topic, director, what does that mean? I'm not sure if I, like, I've always thought, I've never made a film that I put on Netflix. Um, so, like, a director versus a producer, what was your role in this? So, making? I had both those roles on this. Okay. And, and it's going to be different production to production, but it basically means on this film that I had a vision for it from the very beginning, and I took that vision through every stage. I did all the interviews that are in the film. I, in this case, I was, my background was as an editor in post-production, so I'd edited other people's features and edited this one, and brought that all the way to completion. And it, 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 there were a lot of other people who worked with me on it. I had a number of camera people. I had someone who did music and sound design and, and you know, all of these things. But with each of them, I would work with them on their particular craft. So I would tell the person who is composing, this is what I need the music to accomplish, and this is maybe how it should feel. And then he would create something based on that that was better than anything I could ever do. Wow. Yeah, I'll say that opening scene that I saw today, I was immediately crying. I Because just no, the anticipation and seeing the uh, baby's face. Uh, baby's faces can get me to cry pretty yeah. easily, but especially under that context, I'm like, oh, my gosh. And there might have been like the kind of the somatic, the issues and the tissues sort of experience coming up for me. I will that. say that that kid is one of the best actors I've ever worked with. So, you know, very authentic performance. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, and then there's one – oh, man. There was one other topic about that. Yeah, I do believe, like, one of my fr – I, I remember one of my friends in particular coming to me 
and he coaches people to get in touch with their heart. And then I think he like came to me one evening. People have this tendency to come to me to confess, and which I think I understand at this point. <laughs> like confessing to me that he's like he thinks is he just doing this for himself? Like, I, I, am I am I the one? And I'm like I hope you are. I trust you are because like that's a true master. A true master yeah. is like learning what they l- want to learn about themselves, and so much so that they can ins- inspire others to do the same. Yeah. So I'm like wondering, well, was there a real personal? What's oh, the most I'm totally pers- doing it for myself. I'll, yeah. So I'll tell us, tell me completely. a little bit about that. Um, so I did this, <clears throat> I started working on the film shortly after I discovered the issue and I had a lot of grief around it and I was depressed and I had a month where I was basically just reading everything I could on the subject and couldn't really do anything else. Like I just, I wasn't getting any work done and I had to move that energy in some way. So one of the things that I've heard is that men heal differently. Women tend to do very well in talk therapy, but men often want to do something the energy they have they need to move it in some way often through a project or a work of some kind and so for me this was the way to move that energy because film is what I love it's what I've always wanted to do and so it made sense for me to use that unique skill on this issue and and communicate what I was learning to a larger audience that way so yeah I you know it's funny to me people will say oh thank you for making this film and uh, there's a part of me that's always thinking whenever that happens, yeah, but I, I don't really do it for anyone else. I'm, I'm, if I'm being honest, it was a very selfish act. Yeah, this is and we, uh, that, that trips me out because I start thinking about how, like, s- there is a difference, I think, between self-fullness and mm-hmm. self and I think that's thank you thank you for bringing that to the exalted version <laughs> of self-full, yeah. not, not where I took it, which is very different. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal for us to follow those what what is important to us, and if we find a way to channel all that energy, and uh, um, I you mentioned that on a more personal note that you went to Elliot Hulse's event. He actually came. He he helped do one of our tribe designs, and I think he brought one of before grounding camp even existed. He did one of those sessions at our event. What did you go do with Elliot Hulse, and was this before? The film was made, or was this part of the... It was after, and uh, he did a video on circumcision, just sort of talking about his thoughts on it. And he intuitively had the right idea, but he hadn't done the same level of research that I had. So I reached out to him, I told him I made this film, and that I wanted to connect. And at the time, he was starting to do interviews with people, and so we did one. And I brought the knowledge that I had gathered through making the film. Uh, And then we just started talking afterward, and he was doing a grounding camp here in Austin, Texas, and I live in Austin, so it made sense to go. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, I I definitely moved some energy there. I don't know quite how else to describe it. Uh, Yeah. You're going to have to ask me a question if you want me to expand yeah, well, on that because I, I, don't, I don't really know how to expand on it. I definitely want to honor the synchronicity that here we are in Austin for our next event, March 22nd. I'm not sure if you're available, but I'll plant that seed. The next tribe design is here. Okay. And here we are. Interv- I'm interviewing you. <laughs> it's like, let's let's do the 2.0. Maybe we can get Elliot to come. Who knows? Um, yeah, that was, I imagine, for your experience there. That's a good question. When he brought it to our event, I remember at one point thinking – this looks like arguably the most hellish and heavenly experience I've ever seen in a container. There was some sort of polarity going on where like inner, subtle energy was amplified. 
and uh, it showed up in weird ways in people and healing ways, I'd say. Yeah. I'll go really meta with this, which is one of the questions that I get from people is how to heal around the issue of circumcision. And what I have found talking to a lot of different men and in my own experience and trying a lot of different healing modalities is that the things that tend to work the best are what you would call somatic therapy. So therapy that bypasses the conscious mind and goes into the body in some way. Or trance-based therapies, which bypass the conscious mind and go into the deep mind or the unconscious in some way. Because really early life experiences, like the ones we've talked about, like things that do not have a narrative memory, are often difficult for the, the conscious mind to talk about. And there are things that you may have... You, you probably have sensations or feelings or things in the body around, but you might not be able to access in a, just a one-on-one conversation and having coffee with someone. So those are the things that I have seen work the best for people. And Elliot's event did not go into those things for me, but it was a lot of fun. And... I had I have a lot of creative energy that I want to move this year. So the energy that I'm moving right now isn't so much energy around trauma or grief or something like that. It's that I just want to create a ton of things, and I want to get that energy moving. So it was very useful for that, uh, working with a more positive type of energy, I guess you'd say. Nice. Yeah, that's exciting to hear. I think it's a great description. Uh, it's fun to get to know you on into this context as well do you what do you have any plan of action for how you're going to channel this creative energy i have 20 different projects that could take up the entire rest of the podcast so if you want to if you want me to go into that i can but i also want to make sure that we give the people listening what what would be most useful to them on this issue yes yes i hear you on that is there something you think right now that what is the the, the, what does the culture really need to understand about this topic in a, in a coconut shell? Like men, women, boys, girls? I think the biggest thing that I would want people to understand about this issue is that it affects far more than we realize. Circumcision in the mainstream culture is usually framed as a one-time decision that parents make and never have to think about again. And in reality, it is more like throwing a stone in a pond. It's a decision that ripples out through a man's life, through his relationships, his sexuality, his relationship to his own body and self-image, his partners, institutions like medicine and media and even law and policy. All are affected by this issue. And all in the most personal way possible. So this is not an issue that exists out in the world. It is not something like you would read about in the news. It is something that affects families and family relationships on the most personal level and the most personal aspects of someone's life. And I think when you frame it that way, it is not so fringe as people might think. It is actually one of the most important issues, maybe the most important issue in our culture right now. And yeah, I. it's funny it's not that funny. It's not even a good way to put it. It's interesting and crazy and borderline disturbing that where my wife is from, for instance, in Denmark, um, that's it would be very 
abnormal to see a circumcised man. I think she was um, the first circumcised male she's ever seen. And uh, so the whole thing is confusing to her. What do you, what do you think that's about? Why the United States, is it, has it been? What is the statistic on that currently or where have they been? Yeah. Do you know how that's teeter-tottered over time? So most of the world does not practice circumcision. The, the Jewish world and the Islamic world do and certain African tribal societies. And it's there's like scattered amounts of it in other places in the world. But America is the only industrialized country that routinely practices non-religious infant circumcision. And there is a lot of reasons that you could say that that continues. I think one of the biggest ones is that it's just really difficult for people to talk about. So if you talk about this issue, you are violating a number of taboos. You're, you're violating the taboo of talking publicly about sexuality. You're violating the taboo of talking about how we treat children because there's a lot of things that society does to children, but you're not allowed to question the decisions parents make, right? That is that is actually a, a taboo. There's a lot of parenting groups that have, you know, as a rule, no bashing. You can't criticize anyone else's decision. Uh, it, you know, it goes into our taboos around gender, that we actually see men and women and male and female bodies very differently. And it goes into religious taboos. So you cannot criticize religion. You can't say that someone's religion is wrong. And you especially can't say anything that the Jewish religion does is wrong because that's a whole separate, even higher taboo. And so I think the challenge is talking about this issue and, and actually being willing to have an authentic conversation even though, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning, there's a lot of reasons that simply talking about this would cause someone to reject you, to think that you are uh, unacceptable and worthy of shame or shouldn't shouldn't be allowed to have that conversation. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I've seen examples of that, and that's a lot of breaking normal is about, turning that you can't into you can, and there mm. might be consequences. It's like, yeah. and I, my faith and what I see is that by staying true to the choice of addressing what's most real and important, with an open heart and a flexible mind with coherent language is what creates more miracles and like where we can be in our best play version of ourselves and we can produce films that are going to maybe get this to be a topic now. So, um, yeah, that's, it's a thing. It's a thing. I'm like, there's so much to talk about it with, uh, I'm, have you ever there? I remember hearing a podcast with Daniel Vitalis and uh, some, I believe, some a sort, uh, someone in the medical field about, and he's studied this for a long time and is definitely clearly no more circumcision is necessary. And I almost was picking up. This is what I interpreted from it that he that there's an em potential emotional desensitization, if I could say that word properly, that happens very early on that may may cause a man to go down the ripple or the way of being less empathetic than natural, less empathetic than natural. And then my conspiracy mind started going down this rabbit trail like, man, is that why? Like how I've always been curious to how someone can go to war. I'm mean, like, that doesn't resonate with me. Like, I don't know if I could do that, be a part of that. And I'm like, is that one, is there a correlation between the U S is powerful 
military and the strong like court how why are we circumcising men it's, why are we desensitizing these men at such an early age is this is there a correlation between that and the force of our military so i've explored thoughts around that i don't know if you have uh, so there are activists who will say that if you look at the cultures in the world that are at war it is the middle east so it's jews and muslims and americans and if you look at the cultures that circumcise, it is Jews, Muslims, and Americans. Now, obviously, there is more to that issue than just that. And again, it is not the kind of thing that you could prove. So when activists assert this, they are talking about a theory. They're not talking about some proven, you know, peer-reviewed scientific study. But that doesn't mean that desensitized people or people who have experienced a trauma early in their life in which all of their family around them was not sensitive to that trauma, not acknowledging it, not empathetic to it, might be less likely to show empathy to others. And I think that in order to go to war or to hurt someone else in any way, you have to in some way see them as separate from you. Because if you take them as a part of yourself, if you see them as in some way part of you, as, as you are in relationship with them, then their well-being and their highest good is in some way going to be a part of your decision-making. You don't want to hurt someone who you care about. So, again, like those are, I think that the, there is something to that even if it can't be quantified in the way that we would normally quantify scientific data. Yeah, that's me basically confessing some curiosities I've had around the topic. And another one that came up, especially when you were saying the original intention of the current that, – that culture that was like, let's make sure men are less sexually active so they can focus more on God – I, I I was having memories of uh, masturbating and feeling guilty about it. And I was like, man, where does this, like, is that deeply embedded sexual shame somehow associated with the circumcision? I'm like, I, my curiosities took me down that rabbit trail when you were speaking. It's possible. Again, there's it's hard to quantify, too, I think, because there's a lot of sexual shame in our culture. And it comes from a lot of sources. And, and the same is true of the cultural forces that want to desensitize men. So if you go into the way that we treat men, men as a traditional role in society have had to sacrifice their well-being and comfort for the good of the tribe. So men have to do things that require them to put their safety on the line in some way for the good of others. And if a man isn't willing to do that, we have a whole lot of shaming words for him. He's weak. He's a pussy. He is in some way less ma manly or masculine. And I think there is some value to being willing to put your safety on the line for the tribe. That is actually a good and noble masculine role. Where that becomes perverted or where a shadow version of that comes in is when we tell men to ignore their true self, their integrity, their knowledge of what's right and wrong because the tribe wants them to do something different. And men who speak out on this issue are sacrificing their emotional comfort. They're sacrificing their comfort of their status and position in the tribe in order for in order to help the smallest and weakest members of the tribe, in order to help their future children. 
And I actually think that is incredibly masculine. It's just that it's a type of masculinity that isn't rewarded by the tribe because it goes against the shadow elements within that tribe. Man, yeah, let that marinate. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, another thing that I remember from that listening to that podcast years ago was, once again, I'm not quoting the doctor or whoever he was directly, but my takeaway was that PTSD, uh, it may be a form, circumcision may be a form of PTSD, obviously, and a lot of times a traumatized person or a hurt person hurts other people. So they they almost become like um, like the trauma. It becomes like gen- passed along, just as like a, a genes could be or memes could be. So this trauma it almost seems like a virus. Like it's getting passed through these different individuals. And I was the, another curiosity of mine was is, is so our dads they tell the the conscious story is that they want their son to look like them or they want their son not to be made fun of like on the football team or some story like that. Um, but unconsciously, I can't help but be curious, is the trauma what's controlling these decisions? And is this like an unconscious abuse pattern? Man, there's so much I could talk about there. So the PTSD element is one of the few elements that has been studied and shown. So children who were circumcised have a different reaction to pain later. And that's one of the studies we go into in the film. When they those children were getting vaccinated, they responded much more dramatically to the pain and the researchers attribute this to PTSD. So they had a painful experience during circumcision. They received pain during vaccination, and they, they remembered the pain of circumcision and responded much bigger. On the subject of why fathers do this, there is a pattern here that follows the pattern of a lot of forms of childhood abuse. So if your dad beat you, then in order to not beat your child, you have to admit that your father maybe was not as good as he could have been and maybe he did not love you as much as you thought he did or love you in the way that you needed him to. And that's really painful. So if you're not willing to admit that, then you have to tell a story that what he did was good. And if you're going to be a good father, you have to do what he did to your child. So that's one level. And that's the level that all childhood abuse follows and that this certainly fits in the narrative of on another level there's that excuse that he should look like his father well i don't know about you but i have never compared penises with my father that is a really strange thing i don't know of any child for whom they have a deep need to have their genitals look like someone else's i've never met a kid for whom this was a thing and i think that if you were to suggest this was something children wanted, people would think you were a pervert of some kind. So why is it that fathers say this? Well, it's because the father has an insecurity that his body might not look like his child's. It's important to him that the child look like him. And there's two things happening here. One is the trauma of what he had, and it's important to him that he he passed that on like we've talked about and the second thing is that I think when doctors say this they're playing on a really deep insecurity of men that the child actually isn't theirs because if the child doesn't look like you then maybe it's because it's some other man's child right and so they're they're hitting that real unconscious fear that men have that maybe she was with someone else and it's someone else's kid. But if it's your child, he looks like you, right? He has half your genetics. 
you know, he has all of the same qualities. Like, I, I am very certain that I am my father's child because we have so much in common, it's ridiculous. So that is like a really unconscious fear that I think people play on when they make that argument. And you just have to remind the father, he looks like you. He's your kid, you know? Yeah, that's some deep stuff right there. That uh, reminds me of, of a great book I've referenced many times, Virus of the Mind. I'm not sure if you've ever checked that out. I have not. Okay. It's about memetics and how ideas get passed along and how they're very vi they're very viral in nature. And uh, if sometimes the one way an idea gets passed along is to associate it with a very triggering idea. It's mm. like, of course you want your child to look like you because of right. course you unconsciously, like you, no matter what I say, you want your child to be yours. Right. It's like that little unconscious, like you're not a cuck, are you? You know? <laughs> yeah. This is crazy stuff. This, yeah. It's crazy. It's I chuckle about it now. Maybe it's because I'm borderline dissociative or it's, I guess it's my way of dealing with it and my way of realizing that that happened to me. And it actually feels very important me doing this podcast. Like because that happened to me, I get to speak up about it and share my beliefs around it. And I'm so happy we're having this conversation about it. Um, what if, you know, you mentioned that. I have, I have a friend actually from the Middle East. His, his heritage is, he was born in the United States, Iranian. And um, he was, he had a lot of shame about not, funny enough, his parents are both gynecologists and he was not circumcised. Interesting. Um, I, I wonder how many doctors circumcise their own children, actually. You know, wow. I've actually heard a lot of intact men say that they weren't circumcised because their mom or dad was a doctor or nurse, and they saw them done, and they just said, we're not doing that to my kid. But they'll they'll do it for other people's kids because they get paid for that. <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother one. <laughs> but my friend was actually, he's very, um, like, he was, really, we were both learning a lot about our emotional well-being at this time in our life and holding each other accountable. And it was, he was quite embarrassed that he was not circumcised. He had a lot of shame around having an uncircumcised penis. I think he kept it. I think he learned more and more about himself. Yeah. But I think there was a temptation of like, do I get a circumcision? And I, and I talked to a mutual friend, Jordan, about this. He said he had a friend that recently got a circumcision as well because mm. – not recently, but in the teenage years because he couldn't stand the shame, I guess, of having an uncircumcised penis on a swim team or something like that. Right. Yeah. In Islamic culture or in Middle Eastern cultures, it's a little different because it's done later and it's done as an initiation into manhood. So I have heard from men in those cultures that they experience the shame that you might feel if your culture does not recognize you as a man. So there's this ceremony that you go through to be recognized as a man. And if you don't go through that, well, maybe I'm not really a man, right? And I have one friend who grew up in Turkish culture who was told that by his peers. Like, because he's this way, he's not really a member of their culture. He's not really a man. And so there's this place that those men are put in where they either have to do something that goes against what they might want or might hurt them in some way or experience a lack of belonging. And lack of belonging is one of the most primal fears ha people have. And it's so painful that people might choose other pains rather than face it. So I, I get that. And, and lack of belonging is something that people play on in American culture when they shame men for the bodies they have. And even the language we use, you know, in American culture, they refer to intact men as uncircumcised. 
which is sort of strange. Like you wouldn't say that a natural whole woman is unmasectomied, right? You'd say she's normal, whole, intact. But we use language to in some way make the normal abnormal. And then we make circumcision the default through language. So men who have experienced something which is abnormal, which is an aberration from the natural male body, are made to feel like that's normal. And men who have the normal intact body that all men are born with are made to feel like that's abnormal. It's pretty crafty. The virus, those virus, mind viruses are pretty crafty. Yeah. Man. Um, hmm. You look like you have a question you're brooding on. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, I just really could, I, I, what do we do? Uh, you're doing it. You're doing it. What do other people do? Is there another way to, other than like, sh I would support people to look into the film, share it. Uh, but what can, is there another step we can take? So I just put a post on my blog called How to Start Your Activism, which I've gotten a lot of people asking me, I just saw your film. I'm really moved by this issue. I want to do something about it. What do I do? And I think that's a question a lot of people have. And, and the advice I give in this post, you can find it on my website, brennamarada.com. But the advice I give is that you want to find what your unique superpower is. The thing that you would do if you weren't working on any issue that is just a skill that you have. And then as much as possible, contact existing activist organizations, contact other people working on the issue, coordinate with them, and see if there's a way you can use your unique gifts to work with them. Because for me, my personal ability, my, my personal superpower, if you will, is around film and media. I, I That is something I love doing. It's what I would do if I didn't have any issue I cared about and was just doing something fun. And so I combine that with this, this particular topic. And then I coordinated a lot with other people who were already working on it. So my film is a lot of interviews. It's people who have already put their unique ability in on this issue. And I was able to amplify that through my unique skills. And then I would also say that it's really important as you're doing this to take care of yourself because there are, are a lot of emotions this issue brings up and that self-care is as much a part of the process. You know, if I was giving advice to someone on exercise or weightlifting or muscle building, it would be wrong of me to suggest you should just throw all your energy towards that and not have any rest days, right? And that you should, that the injury prevention and, and downtime was not part of that process. Uh, so I think self-care as you're doing this is really important and learning is really important. So the fact that you know stuff around how ideas are spread in society, the fact that you know about podcasting, the fact that you know about tribe building, the fact that you have these other skills makes you more effective when it comes to working on this issue than if you were to discover it and not have already built that. So that, that would be my advice is you probably, if you're listening to a podcast like this, already have a unique skill of some kind. And as much as possible, connect with other people who are already working on the issue and see if you can contribute your unique skill to them. Wow, such great uh, life advice for not only this topic, but all topics. Yeah. I love how that, 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 that seems to be a golden thread of this uh, synergy. I'd say that we're talking about the symbol of circumcision, but this carries over to so many things. It does. The, the process of one thing is the process of everything. And on that note, 
I would love to know what's out of those 20 projects that you have coming up, which is the one that you feel like you have the most bubbling excitement around? Hmm. So the first one that came to mind was that I'm working on a video series now that's going to teach people how to crowdfund their dream project. So if you have, like I did, a film that you want to do or a book or a comic or a show or even a nonprofit or cause, this is going to teach you how to find an audience for that and raise money from that audience. Um, so that's the main one I'm working on right now. And on top of that, I have a book I'm working on on the subject of circumcision, and I have a screenplay for a horror film that's totally unrelated to any of this stuff that I just think would be really good. It's a horror film about the healing process, uh, and that's all I'll say about that. And I have a novel that I've co-written with my dad, which is a Christmas story that'll come out at Christmas. Wow, I'm so uh, stoked on all those. Uh, I'm, I, got, I got excited imagining that for you. Um, and they're fun. That sounds so much fun. It sounds like you're yeah. good. You got some good things on the horizon. I, I, I hope, you know, my my challenge is that there's more things I want to do than time. <laughs> so I'll add to this. If you have a unique superpower that you might be able to contribute to the things that I'm doing, I'm always looking for good people. Hey, that's a good plug. And would that be through the website to find you? Is that the best way to contact you? BrennanMarotta.com, yes. And I am on all the social networks at, at BDMarotta. Okay, great, great. I might even take you up on that offer. I'm going to let that marinate. All right, great. Um, and speaking of great stories and productions, I'm a, I am like Napoleon Hill. I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of Outwitting the Devil? I've heard of Napoleon Hill, but I don't know that book. Okay, that's a great audiobook, by the way. Okay. Um, and what his what I understood from that book was – he had a conversation with the devil, and it's kind of a cool story because allegedly this the manuscript was n not released until he passed away, and a lot of the family members that wouldn't let it out oh, passed away. So that kind of thickens the plot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but he basically, you see, in the book, it seems like he's claiming he's having a conversation with the devil, and he interrogates the devil and interviews the devil to find out what's going on. And my what I remember from that is that. The devil has like 90 – the devil claims to have 98% of the humanity on uh, in a trance through methods, through different methods, like uh, all kinds of cultural methods. And I just can't – I'm wondering what is your personal belief? Like why – what is the root of this virus of the mind of circumcision? Where is it going from? Is it the devil or is it – So – I believe, and this is my personal belief, this is not something that is part of the issue as much as part of my way of viewing the world. My personal belief is that a lot of what we do in, on this planet is create through contrast. So we have a very negative experience in order to learn something, almost like a, a rubber band being pulled back that will slingshot us into what we want. And... If you look at, for example, human rights law, human rights law is not something that existed prior to the 20th century, and it is something that people discovered and created in reaction to many of the events of the 20th century. But that understanding of the world came through contrast in some way. And while there are people who have ill will, or what you 
might frame in the context of say the the book that you mentioned is demonic forces or evil or things like that in some way we are using them for our own growth and consciousness and if you look at for example the story of buddha buddha is taunted by a demon named mara but buddha's response to that is to invite mara in for tea because he understands that in some way mara is a beneficial antagonist that mara is revealing to him every aspect of him that is not enlightened and not aligned and not the highest version of itself and that in the end buddha could not have become enlightened without mara so i think that even though there may be negative forces in the world negative experiences great evils that these in some way serve us by making us aware of things we were not previously aware of and i know that i personally would not have thought about early life experiences or how we treat children or any of the things i have learned around persuasion and relationships and sexuality and moving energy and all of these things had there not been something that happened to me that i couldn't solve on a purely physical level and that had not left a lasting impression in other words if it happened when i was young and i never had to see or think about it again if there was not a scar i might not have gone down this path so in some way that event forced me to grow and learn in the way that i did and even though negativity or contrast isn't the only way to grow it is a very popular way to grow on this planet definitely uh, imagine the symbol of yin and yang with that uh, expression it's beautiful um, yeah I've also the idea that sometimes the medicine is in the poison and the poison mm. is in the dose yes and I I, I do want to as we wrap up here I want to really make sure everyone understands that I am not mad or angry or condemning or saying the people that are evil or this is wrong as much as the idea I am exploring the where did this idea come from and what can we do about it and I love my dad and I love my dad for even making the decision it's not like I love the decision I mean I, I'm like I don't but at the same time I see the beauty and it's like man I got, I'm gonna learn about this I gotta learn about what's going on that doesn't seem something about that seems odd and I have this energy that seemingly is captivating me to call it up Call up what's yeah. going on. Call the elephant in the. Call up the elephant in the room of culture. I have to say though, I think it would be okay if you were mad at him. Uh, yeah. And I want to. Yeah. I want to make that clear because if you have a feeling like that, if you do feel angry at someone, I think it is really important to be present with that feeling and validate that feeling without landing it on someone or taking action on it that would not be right. And I think a lot of that's come from just I've had some angry conversations mm. with my parents about yeah. this, and I think it's kind of dissipated more into like a perspective now. But yeah, I hear I hear you on that too. I'm, I I trust no one else is undermining their anger around the topic because anger can be channeled into one of the most powerfully, quickly creative forces that I know of, especially when it's channeled in a healthy yeah. way. Man, so inspiring getting to know you. Is there anything that you want to make sure we brush over? Do you feel you feel we did it anything you want to touch back on i feel like you know this is an issue i could talk about for another 
five hours. There's enough here, and there's enough that I know, and enough that interests me. But I feel like we covered what we needed to. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as you opened the film and you showed this device, maybe we can sort of conclude this transmission. What is the actual, like in a hospital, what the heck? What, how did they even happen? How does this even happen? They say, I'm going to take your baby for a second, and I'm going to take him in another room and snip his penis, or is it just like under the sheets? Can you just describe that so people get a little bit of a visceral understanding of what this process may be like for a baby for a baby so the informed consent for circumcision is virtually non-existent all of the information we've talked about would not be given to a parent all the information in my film might not be given usually what the doctor does is he asks would you like your child circumcised and that's it now in most medical procedures you give what's known as informed consent which is what would any reasonable person want to know so if you were going in to get surgery of some kind the doctor would say well here are the risks here's what might go wrong here is what we hope it will accomplish here's the likely outcome just what any reasonable person would want to know on circumcision they don't really give all the information when they do they say well maybe there's some benefits but it's probably the same either way they don't talk about the aspect of pain they don't talk about the change in sexuality they don't talk about the fact that your child might come to you several years later or, or when he's an adult and say i didn't like the decision you made for me these are not part of the informed consent so they just ask parents do you want it done um Here's the consent form, sign it. And, and very often I've heard from parents, they use very high pressure sales tactics. So they'll get asked like six times, do you want this done? And the parents are like, no, we, we told you the first five times, you know. But the procedure itself, the, the child is taken and strapped down in a four-point restraint, which is known as a circumstraint. And there's a specific device used to do this. I've had people see that opening and think, oh, no, they couldn't do it that way. But then... They do, and we show one later on in the film where they do do it, you know, using one of those. Um, they rub an iodine solution, or what's essentially a disinfectant on it. And, and one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that when they are touching this child's genitals, that is in some way the child's first shared sexual experience. So the child will often get an erection when they do that. And I've heard some people say that, that nurses want that to happen because then it is larger and it's easier to operate on. But... You know, you're giving this child sexual arousal and then associating what comes next with that, with his first experience. So after that, the foreskin is fused. And I know this is graphic and I know it's hard to listen to. So if you, it's too much at any point, stop me. Uh, it's definitely, um, it's, I feel like a healthy thing is happening to me by imagining mm. it because it might remind me more in a conscious way of what we were talking about earlier. Like, I'm not sure if I remember it. Maybe this is helping me. Well, if you had it done during a bris, that is slightly different. But, yeah, it, the, the bris has has multiple ways that it's done. And they often use a slightly different device when they do it. They use the Mogan clamp instead, which has its own issues and problems. Or they have... Uh, a grandparent often holding the child while it happens instead of that circumstraint device, which, you know, has its own associations, right? I've also, just a side note, I don't know about how real this is or maybe it was more real in the history. I've heard some rabbis do it with their teeth. Or is, that, is that something crazy or am I so just making that up? We, yeah, <laughs> so the in the Jewish tradition, in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, there is something called mitzitzah which is... Tra roughly translates to oral suction. 
and the foreskin is fused to the head of the glands. And so, same way your fingernails fuse to your fingers. So one of the things they have to do is break that away. And in the medical setting, that's done with like a blunt probe. And I have heard that Moyle's Jewish ritual circumcisers will sometimes do that with like a long fingernail or something, some sort of sharp object like that. So you can imagine having your fingernail broken away from your finger, right? That's really painful. But then, uh, you know, in the Jewish tradition, there's something called Metzitza Bepeh, which roughly translates, like I said, to oral section. And, and after the foreskin is cut off, the moil will put his mouth on the genitals of the child and suck blood from that wound to sterilize it. This is the reason, supposed reason given. And in New York, there was several cases where a moil gave a child herpes by doing that. He had herpes sores on his mouth, and he transmitted that to the child, which in a child that young is lethal. And the New York Health Department wanted to regulate that. And the Orthodox community responded by saying, no, that's our religion. So you're, you're not... You're not making that up. That is a, a, a real thing where they will put their mouth on the genitals of a child. And it's not to remove the foreskin. It's after the foreskin's already removed. But it's still disturbing. I mean, you can find photos of this online. I, I think that if a religious leader was to put his mouth on a child's genitals and transmit herpes in any other setting, we would all recognize that as really messed up. But because it's part of religion, because the, it is actually a part of the tradition, not a aberration from the tradition not something they're doing wrong and trying you know to hide it's seen as okay and, and i always you know when when people get very upset when you criticize any aspect of religion and when you criticize especially any jewish practice but i don't know how you can defend this i mean i have talked to jewish people who are pro-circumcision who will admit yeah that that actually is kind of messed up and we should probably change that so yeah Okay, okay, so we went there. There's, there's many ways this is done. In the hospital, did you complete the most traditional ways done in the hospital? So in, in the hospital, they, the they usually use something called a gomco clamp, which uses thousands of tons of pressure to, to break that piece of the skin away. And it's this clamp that they use sits on the foreskin for 15 minutes and achieves fusion, and then they cut it away. And I think that that's important, too, because... People will often describe it as a little snip when it is a 20-minute involved procedure where you have to break something away from the skin and then attach this big metal clamp and sits on there for 15 minutes. And, you know, the version that's in my film is short. I think we showed two minutes of it. But the child does not have the ability to leave that experience. You know, I have adults who watch the film who say, I couldn't watch that scene. And... Uh, I left during it. And part of the reason that we have a title card before that scene saying it's only going to be two minutes is because I found that when I would show people that in test screenings, they would just fast forward. They're like, I don't know how long this is going to be. Are you going to show me the full 20-minute thing? I don't know. I can't handle it. So I just let people know if, if you cannot see that scene, it's two minutes. That's how much uh, close your eyes or fast forward or whatever you're going to do. Um, but the full procedure is 20 minutes, and the child doesn't have the ability to fast forward. He cannot skip this scene, so to speak. And, and especially young children, their sense of time is different than ours. So 20 minutes for someone who's been alive only a few hours is a pretty large percentage of his life. 
That's that's significant time for him. Wow. Well, yeah, I'll I'll leave that. I'll leave it there. It's like yeah. Yeah, let's consider that. Let's consider that and consider it with an open heart and like we mentioned earlier to channel that if it's a frustration, if it's an anger, if it's fear, channel that into doing something about what matters the most and what you're really good at and that flows for you, uh, whether it's this or something around this or something totally different. I support you in breaking normal and uh, man, I support you in breaking normal. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Man. Peace and guys. This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Oh, wow. Huh? How was that for y'all? I'd love to know. Let me know. Uh, send me a message on Instagram. Leave it on the reviews on iTunes, however you'd like to. And enjoy this next this next teaser of Breaking Normal. And if, you, if it resonates with you, go ahead and grab it on Audible. If it's your first time downloading a book, it's free 99, free for none. And, uh, man, what a value, huh? It's like uh, my <laughs> the golden thread of my life, a big chunk of my life. Um, summarized and an easy, enjoyable way to tune into the frequency without even having to purchase a physical item. Isn't that cool? That's so cool. You're so cool. Keep being cool, y'all. Enjoy Breaking Normal. You get what you give, and you see what you are looking for. Chapter 5. Self-Acceptance Through Self-Expression At a recent play shop, an older man shared a dream he'd previously had. He was climbing a mountain, getting closer to the top, but also feeling tired and weighed down. He was wearing a backpack, which at first seemed normal, until he realized that he had no idea what was in it, no idea why he had packed it, and no reason to continue carrying it up the mountain. To reach the top, he decided, he would have to drop it. He mentioned this dream in the context of the next exercise, confession. The backpack, he decided, was full of stories that were no longer useful to him, that held him back in his growth as a person. They were stories about what he could and couldn't do, based on the fact that he was such and such type of person. They were memories of memories, of incidences from his past, things that he still carried shame about, things that had happened years ago, which, when he thought about them, still had the power to make him feel embarrassed. He realized that he had packed this backpack, not all at once, but over the course of his life. Every time he stopped himself from fully feeling an experience, the backpack got heavier. Every time he allowed emotions like fear to prevent him from doing something that a fun, comfortable voice inside him wanted to do, the backpack got heavier. Every time he rationalized about why it had to be so, when deeper down he knew better, the backpack got heavier. How do you get rid of the backpack? You get honest. It sounds easy. It sounds cliche. Clichés are popular, however, because a lot of people recognize their inherent truth. Like most clichés, there's a lot more to them initially than meets the eye. The first step to getting honest is to start talking about the ways in which we might have lied in the past. Emerson says, commit a crime, and the world is made of glass. Lying is exactly that sort of crime. It turns the ground to glass that we fear will break with every step. So we start to tiptoe, and when we tiptoe, we're tense. Tension causes stress, and stress can cause dis-ease. 
By restricting our breathing, creating energy blockages, and damming emotions, stress leads to fatigue, hormonal imbalance, and even changes our internal pH. Disease thrives in tense, acidic environments. The most insidious, most prevalent form of lying is withholding, which is not saying something we want to say because we fear the reaction. The thing one withholds doesn't go away. It stays within like a landmine. The more people withhold, the more landmines they gather. After a while, they can't even play or relax anymore because there are so many mines in the yard, so to speak, that they might step on one at any moment. Others can't play or relax around them because it's dangerous. One wrong word, and they might blow up. That is, blow up on them. The landmines surround them and bisect them. They cut people off from themselves and cut them off from other people. Lying fills them with waste, leads to heaviness and constipation. Whether it's withholding, partial withholding, telling white lies, or speaking slander altogether, the end result is that they don't get it out. When they lie about something, they create a gap between the person they're pretending to be and the person they really are. It takes a lot of energy to maintain that gap, and the more energy that goes into maintaining it, the less energy there is to put into things that might matter more, like their goals and their pursuits. And that way, lying is a form of self-sabotage. Their light gets dim because of all the stories they layer on top of it. Similar to covering their body in shame and shutting their emotions down in fear, they start putting filters on what they say. They think before they speak and neurotically daily bite their tongue. That's the road that leads out of the garden, paved though it might be with good intentions. The lies this road is made of are sometimes big, but they are more often small white lies. Taken one at a time, they seem inconsequential, benign. The lies are casual and in some cases even expected. Passing someone on the street, for example, and asking them how they are, a lot of people don't expect an honest answer. And when they themselves are asked, they rarely give one. I'm fine, they say and move along. They get in the habit of not sharing their authentic opinions or spontaneous impressions as they spring to mind. They try to hide them, along with their insecurities, fears, and judgments. When someone else is talking and they either don't agree or don't feel like listening, they nod their heads mechanically and politely so as not to be rude, meanwhile deceiving that other person by implying that they understand and agree. Oh well, they might rationalize, which means rationally lie. The more I nod my head, the sooner they'll stop talking. It's not worth the trouble of telling the truth. As four-year-olds, we probably wouldn't do that. If someone asked us back then, for example, whether we liked their outfit, we would have given a quick and honest answer. We would have faithfully reported what came up in us in response to the question. Ask that same question a few years later, however, and by then a lot of people would probably have learned to hedge a bit, meaning they would first think it over and play the answer a few times in their minds and then change it based on how they thought the questioner would react. Imagine the toll that takes when one does it every day. It seems like the older they got, the more frequently they had to do it simply to survive, to get by, make friends, please their teachers, preachers, and relatives. Fast forward 20 years or so, and what do we have? An adult, a grown-up, which today can mean someone whose truth is so complicated, so guarded by landmines, 
that they don't express it, maybe don't even hear it because of all the noise. That's the situation a lot of people are in. That's the challenge to overcome. They're emotionally constipated, full of other people's stories. Why? Because rationalizations that keep them trapped in the jail of their minds. They talk differently in public than they do in private. And there is a gap between what they say and how they act. Whenever that gap is exposed, they feel vulnerable and cover it up as quickly as possible. They may have thought that lying, withholding, and biting their tongue was basic social intelligence, a way to get by and not make waves. They might have thought that riding the tide of least resistance would land them on the island of success. Instead, they are marooned, surrounded by landmines, prison bars, out of touch with what they actually think and feel. They withheld their gifts and their strengths their weaknesses and doubts. They lied about the things they didn't want other people to know about them out of fear of rejection. And they lied about the things they did want people to know about them also paradoxically out of fear of rejection. The fear of rejection is often a cover for a fear of intimacy. They made themselves out to be both better and worse than they were. It was false virtue and false modesty, a desire to please others to such an extent that they stopped listening to and honoring themselves. The key to freedom is at the tip of their nose, but like Pinocchio, every time they lie or bite their tongue, that nose grows a little bit bigger. The guard of this jail is the mind that filters every thought. The way out of jail is to surprise the guard, to speak before they think, not after. If they wait to say the words coming up until after they've already thought about them, that is, until they're absolutely sure that the words are safe to say, safe meaning innocuous, inoffensive, filtered, fluoridated, they will probably not say them at all. They will rationalize that the thing they were going to say was stupid or out of left field, that would have offended the other person, that they didn't actually think it, that they didn't know if it was correct or something they made up. They will bite their tongue, and whatever it is was that originally sparked those words within, possibly their heart and soul, will get the message that they aren't listening to it, and eventually it will go quiet altogether. The exercise we do is confession. I love to think of it as social bungee jumping. It's an invitation to unconditional love and to let go of the addiction to fitting in. We get back in the circle and take turns saying all the things we don't want to say, telling the group all the things we don't want them to know about us. Each person has two minutes, two minutes to black out and say whatever comes up that causes their palms to sweat, their hands to shake, and their hearts to beat fastest. The riskier it sounds in your imagination, the more key it may be to your freedom. The time limit is in place to keep the rationalizations and stories to a minimum. The goal of the exercise is to say these things somewhat quickly before you can think your way around them. The role of the audience, in addition to staying present with each confession, is to listen for any hedging, any pulled punches, any rationalizations and stories. If they hear something that seems like an attempt to soften the blow, they can call out, story, to get the confessor back on track. I'm tempted here to explain the exercise further, but I'm even more tempted to show you what I mean by going first. I notice my heartbeat is elevated and my mind is racing, and I imagine that means it's time. Besides, I love following my heart, especially when it seems fun comfortable to do so. The first thing I don't want you to know 